Welcome to ASAR Training and Response Podcast. This is episode 19, where we talk with Chrissy Newman about our recent deployment to Florida after Hurricane Ian. Welcome back, everybody, to the ASAR Training and Response Podcast. We're excited to get started today with our guest, Chrissy Newman, and also co-host Carla Lewis. Carla, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to talk to everybody about our recent deployment to Hurricane Ian and excited to introduce everybody to Chrissy Newman. Chrissy, why don't you tell us and our listeners about yourself? I am president and co-founder of Rescue Ranch in Statesville, North Carolina, and we have uh, 87 acres where we teach kids about earth, the animals, and the environment. So we bring in Um, all different kinds of animals, except for the kind that are really going to eat you because it's not really good for kid programming. And we have field trips and birthday parties and we have homeschool club and we have nature trails and a 10,000 square foot inclusive playground. So kids of all abilities can play together. And we're just trying to make a fun learning environment to teach kids compassion and empathy for the earth, the animals and the environment. And I got involved with um, Code 3 and ASAR gosh, heck, I think it's been about 10 years um, through Nan. And she asked me to take a class out in Colorado, a swift water class. And I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into and fell in love with it and been a part of the team ever since. Yeah. Rescue Ranch has been an outstanding partner, the stage there right before Hurricane Florence and got to see the facility. And it really is just a fun place for kids and, you know, an amazing resource uh, for folks there in North Carolina. And uh, we've been excited to work with them and we're able to share out some some things after our last disaster with equipment and whatnot. So always glad to have the expertise from our Rescue Ranch partners to come in. And, you know, this is going to be a fun podcast because we haven't ever taken our listeners through the process of how we're deployed what it looks like from both the manager point of view and responder point of view, and uh, talk about some of the things that people saw. If you followed us on Facebook, um, you got to see a lot of our rescues. We were really transparent this time about our activity, and you got to see the tough decisions, the good, bad, as we were working for five days in the water. And uh, today, you know, we didn't have time on Facebook to talk about the decisions we made and how it all came about. So today we're going to take a brief minute and uh, and really take you through how things happen for ASAR when we get deployed and how that works with our partners. We're going to give a lot of kudos today because we can't alone and we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't even try if we didn't have our partner support and our partner resources or would just be a training agency. We're going to give love today. We're going to have some good times. And, and Carla, why don't you kick us off a little bit? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think really if we just go way back at like how we start preparing and what we start looking at when we're getting ready to, or we think we might be deploying this storm, it was a really interesting storm. I think we started watching it maybe the last week of September, you know, both kind of came up on, on Eric and I's radar. We both went, Hey, have you seen this? And um, there was a lot of chatter about where it was headed and, and the fact that it could be, it could be a really strong one because we'd had a really quiet hurricane season this year. Um, so I think that was kind of the first thing we, that kind of popped up on our radar. And for a while, you just sit there and watch these storms and kind of talk back and forth. Is it going to hit? Is it going to, you know, not hit? 
Um, and Eric, maybe you could talk a little bit about what we look at, you know, as far as the location and things like MOUs with certain states and, and counties when we're looking for at storms. Yeah, to, to get us started, y'all should know one thing about Carla and I. We are weather geeks. So <laughs> we not only look at the maps, we sit there and read the pages and dig down a little bit because it's important as the team leads to try to decide, okay, at what point in time do we send out notification to our responders to see who's available? And that's going to be, you know, probably five days out. Ooh, this looks like it might do something. Let's just see who's around and who can deploy. And we really take a look at our trained responder list and our certified responder list. That know there's going to be water. You have to go through the ASAR water courses, the swift water, the boat ops to even be able to come out in the field with us. So really that weather forecast and ever changing as it was with Ian, we were watching it really close and man, this one send us for a loop. But the other thing is we reach out to our partners that are in the impact zone. So that big red cone, if you're a Weather Channel follower that says all the possibilities of where this thing could go, if we have a contract or an MOU, MOU is an acronym for Memorandum of Understanding. It's an agreement that we have with county and state emergency management that says, hey, we're going to provide these services to you at no cost. Um, and you're going to agree to bring us in as the agency having jurisdiction. And that, that agency having jurisdiction, that's the biggest part of this. We have to be invited in by emergency management to a possible impact area before we even start to mobilize. So we had those conversations three, four, five days out to say, hey, what do you guys think? You want us to go ahead and assemble a team and go into staging somewhere? And staging is just hanging out, watching the storm go by, because uh, we don't want to get too close too fast, especially in a hurricane. We don't want to be on the dirty side of that storm where we're taking the big winds and the big rain, because if we're impacted as first responders, then we can't help anybody. So we usually hang out just outside of the impact zones of the storms or maybe just on the light rain side. So we're able to go in right after that storm pulls out and start our work. So getting those MOUs in place, getting our responders going is really important. And Chrissy, as a responder, when you get that availability email and you're, you're already starting to see things move around, what's going through your head as far as, hey, I've got to get home secured. I've got to get things packed. What does it look like on your end? Well, as soon as the storm kind of pops up on everyone's radar, I just kind of sit and watch my email waiting for it to come in. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we, we typically just kind of watch the storm and, and see what happens. And then as soon as we know that there's um, a possibility of a need, the email pops into your inbox. And if you have the availability and you can swing, um, like I have two daughters. So for me, it's, you know, do I have someone to watch the girls and uh, my dog and the cats and what's going on at home and just trying to block out that time. Cause you do need, you never know how long you're going to be deployed for. So it could be four or five days. It could be a week. It could be two weeks. Um, you know, it just, it just depends. So you kind of fill out your availability and sit and watch the storm. I think most of us have go bags pretty much ready. So there's not a ton of packing and depending on what area you're going into and what resources are available, that bag kind of changes. So it's just kind of a sit and wait and see what happens until we're told, all right, let's go. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point to make is that most of our responders, if not all of them, are, are volunteers. So these people are volunteering their time, oftentimes using um, their vacation time to come and deploy with us. So like Eric said, we're trying to get to the storm when we're needed, but also we don't want our responders sitting around um, and waiting as well. So there's a lot of preparation involved in timing this correctly and really utilizing our responders' time. Um, you know, it's very valuable to us. Yeah, let's talk about our relationship with our partners at Code 3. You guys know we wear multiple hats here, but, you know, to really talk about the differences, Code 3, if you're interested in starting in disaster response, you start with Code 3. They've got your basic awareness and basic operations training. Code 3 is our larger uh, response team. It has BART, the big animal rescue truck, the semi-truck. And for Code 3, we probably have about 100 responders all over the country that are trained to operations level, which means they can be out in the field and they've got the certificates to do that. ASAR, as we've said before, is a specialist team and a technician team. So it's got people that have been in the business a little bit longer, have a wide range of animal experience, and maybe experts in exotics, maybe experts in water. Most of the teams uh, are rescue instructors for human rescue, uh, whether it be their own agencies or whether it be Rescue 3 International or others. Um, so, you know, no matter what, everybody has another full-time job besides this response. Uh, but really, ASAR is a little bit smaller and a little bit more nimble as far as able to spin up just a little bit faster. So we really, if you're an emergency management partner listening to this, we offer you two MOUs. So you get the smaller specialist team that can be mission ready packaged with a USAR team or a task force team. And then if we got to bring in the Calvary, we're going to activate our code three partners and other partners from our national animal rescue and sheltering coalition. Speaking of sheltering coalitions, maybe we could talk a little bit about um, our partnerships with code three and how they work with um, shelters to clear out shelters um, prior in, you know, impacted shelters in the incident zone prior to the event or even just after the event. Yeah, this year was really exciting because not only did we bring uh, a package of response to Ian, we have shelter partners on both the pre-EVAC side and the recovery side working to A, get animals out of the way so they have another opportunity for adoption and B, staying with their families and, and reunification. So the big shout out is to our EVAC and transport partners at the Bissell Pet Foundation. And the Bissell Pet Foundation has their Shelter Alliance. It's got 50 plus of the biggest shelters across the country that work together during disasters to get animals out of the way. So as we were mobilizing the ASAR teams, we were also working with local jurisdictions and local shelters and Bissell Pet Foundation to start to move animals and get them out of the way two, three days ahead of time. And what was really interesting is that impact zone changed. We were looking at Northern Florida, then Central Florida, then South Central Florida uh, as we were moving. But before the storm, the Bissell Pet Foundation folks moved over 500 animals out of the way into partner shelters. And a lot of those animals have gone on to other adoption opportunities and a lot are, are in safer places. 
but amazing front end work by those transport teams. I think it's really important to let people know that these are animals that were already available for adoption. I know a lot of times when these disasters happen and we talk about transports, people are always like, but shouldn't they be reunited with their families? Well, these are the animals that were already awaiting adoption. So they get transported um, north to all the partner shelters and that leaves room in the shelters for animals that come in after the impact, after the disaster, and then they can stay there for a while while they make all attempts to reunite them with their families. Great point and absolutely a a point of clarity that needs to be understood. So let's fast forward a little bit. So we've contacted emergency management. We have authority to go into several different counties in Florida, and we need a staging area now. Responders are starting to get together. We know that the teams are gonna start to go in. And now we've got to figure out where to go. And again, I'm going to reach back to our Bissell Pet Foundation Shelter Alliance and give a big shout out to Allison over at Birmingham Humane, who gracefully enough said, hey, you need a staging point. Come to Birmingham. You can hang out in our parking lot with your vehicles and wait for the storm to pass. And then you're only eight hours from where you need to deploy into instead of being 24 hours away. So, man, they opened their doors. It was kind of swanky. Yeah, super nice. They had, you know, showers and and bathrooms. It was great. <laughs> Lot, they were just so gracious. Um, gave us full access to their facility for for anything we might need. Yeah, definitely. And and you can tell we are the simple type. If we can get a shower and a bathroom wherever we go, <laughs> we are happy responders. It's all good because you know we've all had that garden hose standing behind a tarp uh, shower after a long day in the field. Uh, So the storm goes by and we're in, uh, started in on September 27th, if my calendar is right, as we were starting to move. And as Ian, of course, kept shifting south and cutting across towards Orlando, instead of coming up into the panhandle, we were able to move a little bit quicker. And our northern counties that we were at our MOUs with said, hey, we're good. Where we still got power, we still got water, and the worst of it ended up down by Fort Myers. So, as part of our responsibility to our state and county partners, as soon as one county says, Okay, you're good, we don't need you, then I call the state that we're serving and say, Okay, we're up for grabs. Do you have any place for us to go? And for Florida, that's ESF 17. ESF stands for Emergency Support Function 17, which deals with animal and animal welfare. Uh, issues. And um, they said, yeah, uh, we think we're going to set up our animal incident command post at in Arcadia, uh, Florida, which is in DeSoto County at the Turner Civic Center there. And funny enough, that is where we were deployed to in Hurricane Irma. We served DeSoto County down there. And what's unique about DeSoto County is it is a flood zone because you've got three different waterways that flow into the Peace River. And so all that rain that was catching up north was starting to flow down into the county. And the flooding was so bad this time in, the route that we came in on Irma was impassable. We found one way in to get there, which means we had to go clear to the east of Arcadia and come in instead of dropping straight down. So we fast forward into arriving at Turner on the 29th and we're ready to hit the ground. So Eric, when you arrive at the EOC, what does that look like for our responders? I mean, I can tell you for me, you know, we have kind of a fleet coming in. We have 
a truck and a trailer with all of our equipment. We have a truck and an RV um, and we have to have a staging place for BART. So, um, you know, what is the first thing you do when you arrive at the OC to get yourself situated and be ready for missions? Yeah, that's when the work really starts. And that's where it really takes a team effort on our response team is my job as the, the overall lead for our, our animal response team is I have to go check in which means I have to go tell them we're here and find out what paperwork they need from us. But that's at the emergency operations center, which is commonly noted at the EOC. And then while I'm doing that, I task our, our team leads like Carla. Okay. You know, get the RVs unpacked. Let's get everything situated. We're going to need to get the boats out. Let's get the, you know, things inflated if we're using the Zodiacs. Uh, and we're going to start to organize because we already know there are missions and a mission is somebody's called in and said, I need help. Either I wasn't home or I had to evacuate. My animals are left behind. They need to have an assessment, maybe feed in place or possibly rescue. So we already know that missions are there. Some of those were put together on social media. And we heard about them while we were driving in two days earlier that there were some large animals left behind. So checking it in at the EOC. And that way they can get you into their incident action plan, which is what happens every eight hours uh, or 12 hours, depending on their rotation. But they want to have accountability for what we're doing. There are a lot of incident command structure forms to fill out with that that we're not going to bore you with today. But having somebody that can track activity and do the paperwork is a must if you're going to get into disaster work. So we are... Uh, at the EOC, and we've actually pulled in a partner team. Uh, when we were down in Irma, we had Josh Carey and American Humane uh, come with us because Josh is an outstanding water guy, and we love his teams. And again, they happened to be available. Uh, they were hanging in Baton Rouge, and we said, hey, American Humane, come play with us. Uh, and we added an, another two water teams as they partnered in with us. So now we have three NARSC members working together. We have ASAR, we have Code 3, and we have American Humane all working together as a unified force to provide technical animal rescue in DeSoto County and working with the state incident command post. So Eric, when you're dealing with local jurisdictions, what's the first, you know, I know we talked to the EOC, but who else do we talk to when we're there? I think um, maybe talking about the local animal control um, and how they can be a valuable resource for them, for us, and, and us for them as well. Yeah, we, we have to work with our local animal control or animal services, whether it be shelters, whether it be field personnel. They know the county. They know the areas that may be hardest hit already. They may know the areas where people need the most help. And they're just a wealth of information. And remember, those regular daily services don't ever stop. So animal control agencies, animal service agencies are stretched well beyond capacity as soon as this happens, because not only are they tasked with their regular daily duty, these guys were tasked with also helping with the mass care shelter where people and animals were uh, co-located uh, in, the, in the Turner Civic Center. So they had to staff that, and then they had all these disaster-related calls coming in that most of it on dry land, their ACOs handled. The water work and the stuff that required technical animal rescue skill sets uh, were, were tossed to us. So we were uh, communicating with animal control, letting them know that we were here for them in whatever capacity. 
and then taking missions from the state. And uh, on top of that, we're still working with our shelter partners as now we've switched from pre-evac to now there's damage somewhere at shelters. And because there's damage, animals can't stay there any longer. And we have to try to coordinate getting either food, water, or those animals moved. So there's not a, a housing and a health issue there. And so again, back to our partner agencies uh, over at Hills uh, and PetSmart Charities and our other uh, support mechanisms for helping us get food and a little bit of funding to get some of this stuff done. And I saw that this is a, a note well after the disaster. I saw several funders like PetSmart Charities, like Petco Love, like Greater Good, all coming together to reach out to impacted areas to say, hey, if you are a shelter agency or an animal welfare agency that was impacted and you need help, reach out to us and see if we can help you. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, unfortunately, ASAR and Code 3, we don't have capacity to fund other places, but we have friends that do. So, uh, you know, we like to make sure we pass on those resources as we move into that response phase. So now that we're all set at the EOC and we have um, our presence is known and, and we're there to help, you know, we got our first mission. Uh, we were ready to go the next day. Uh, what was that Saturday morning, which was, I think, two days after the storm. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what our mission was for the day. Yeah, first mission out was uh, already on social media. We'd already gotten phone calls on these horses, and it was go to a ranch that was right along the Peace River, and there's seven horses and one cow uh, in a barn, and the water level has almost crested. And the pictures that we were seeing uh, made it look like there was there was no airspace left. The, you know, I looked at this picture that was sent to me, and from the viewpoint it was taken, it looked very dire straits. And uh, we talked to the owners and they said, hey, you know, they're out there. The barn's actually the highest ground on the property. Go out there and see what you can do and do an assessment. So we actually met with the owner that very first day and uh, got an opportunity to go out. And so here's where we start to get into to this story. On the very first day, the water was so high and moving so fast, we had to boat in about three-quarters of a mile to a mile, and we're boating through a lot of small country roads with a lot of barbed wire fences that we're, you know, trying to hop over with our motors and having to navigate some really quick water. Mm -hmm. And when it's tough for us as seasoned boat drivers to not get tangled just with our boats, uh, that's a big factor. Fast water when you can't see what's underneath it because everything moves uh, and the debris is unknown. That's some pretty scary stuff. Um, but we get in there and and Chrissy, you know, you were the one of the first ones in that got to talk with the owner. Um, and we're not going to reveal their names on the podcast, but some of the sweetest people ever on the face of the earth. Um, and they started the story was we let all of our animals go to give them a chance including a herd of cattle that was washed away when they tried to swim for it and the horses decided to stay in the barn. What does it look like for you as a responder and, and what were your conversations, Chrissy? Well, when we were first going in, you know, it didn't paint a very good picture, but from several of the disasters we've worked together, we've always kind of found that a lot of times the horses will go where they're fed and it's hard for them to just 
move on and kind of try and seek safety. They feel safe in their barn. And that's what these horses did. They, they stayed close. And a lot of people don't see it. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to shoot some videos and make people aware of some of the challenges that we face. But when we first got in, you're never really sure what you're going to see or how difficult it's going to be. And is there a scenario where you can get them, you know, onto dry land? Well, when we got there, that was not the case. Um, with the amount of fencing and flooding and the swift current, because it's another thing you don't realize, you know, you see a barn in a house, but there's actually like a river flow current moving between you now because of the flooding. So you just kind of look around and assess the situation. And, you know, I think Carla and I were um, one of the first ones in the barn and I immediately, you know, have to go love on the horses and, and see how they're doing. Um, and Carla went into one of the rooms and she's like, we got goats. <laughs> and That's there were right. just goats standing on top of um, bags of, uh, I think it was shavings. So they had gotten to higher ground and were kind of out of the water, but then it became like, okay, well, can we move the goats somewhere? Uh, how do we handle the horse situation? Can we get a veterinarian to come out and start them on antibiotics and kind of help assess their needs? And somebody had, I don't remember who it was that was with us at the time that had found the refrigerator and you pop open the fridge and, and mind you, it's floating, you know, upside down or on its side. So you open the fridge and there were some carrots and apples. So we were able to give the horses some food while we assess them and, got hay out the next day, but you know, you never really know what you're going to find when you go in. And I believe it was that same very first day where we were on our way back and we're like, Oh, we have cows in the water. And that became a whole nother scenario. Yeah. And, and the goats were kind of fun. Carla was able with her GoPro to capture some of it. Uh, there was actually one of those play sets that uh, was really sturdy. It must've been concreted in the ground and it was out of the water and it was the owner that said, hey, can we move the goats up to the play set and let them ride the flood out there? And uh, so we did. We were able to, to take them one at a time and put them in a boat and put them on this play set and give them water and food up there. And they hung out there for three days. Uh, and then we took them down on the slide just yeah. to give them you know, something fun to do. Uh, but the goats, uh, that worked out really well. So and let's the, just say there, though, that the goats were not terribly excited about their boat ride. So, <laughs> so just to get into that a little more, Eric and Josh picked the goats up and I was inside one of the John boats. They lifted it to me in the boat and I'm having to hold on to the goat who just wants to go back to their buddies in the barn because to them that was safety. So I'm holding on to this, you know, goat that's trying to escape and they're pushing the boat over to the playground set. And then one by one, we put the goats up. And then if you know anything about goats, you also know that they're, they can be a little cantankerous to each other. So as I'm bringing each other goat, there's one who decides he owns the play set mm -hmm. and he's keeping all of the other goats and headbutting them as I'm trying to lift the goats up into the play set. So um, all in all, it was, um, you know, successful and funny, but the goats were, were definitely not um, helpful in their uh, rescue. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really entertaining. They finally did settle in and everybody found a place. Uh, so the conversation that first day was, okay, we're here. The horses are healthy now and that we're, we're feeding them some good food. They are very hungry, which is a great sign. And we were talking to the owners about what the terrain looked like under the water. 
because of course we didn't know where the drop-offs were. We didn't know how deep the water was at the time. And the, the owners said, there's a lot of different drop-offs. There's a lot of fences under here. Uh, you know, we, we don't feel like that trying to swim these horses out in this current is viable and us being seasoned boat operators, we do have some techniques that we can use for large animals, but it's extremely dangerous. It's not as dangerous as helicopter lifting, but it's one of those things that the probability of success of swimming an animal out that's been exposed to water for two or three days already, uh, and they've don't have a lot of energy. We're not swimming them in a mile and we're not, you know, we decided that the risk to swim was going to be greater than the risk of them staying there, knowing that we're going to have some medical issues because they're standing in the water that long. And there's some studies out from Hurricane Katrina that we learn lessons from of what needs to be done to give these horses the best chance of recovery um, we've been standing in floodwaters for a long amount of time. So if you guys followed us on Facebook, we took a lot of heat for leaving them behind and we weren't going to take the time to explain the rationale behind it. Um, but what we decided to do was, Hey, vets going to get them on antibiotics while they're still standing on the water. We're going to get in there every day to give them fresh feed. Uh, one of the best feed bunks that we ever put together was a pickup truck that we were able to push back into the barn in the floodwaters. It was practically floating on its own um, and used the back as a feed bunk. So we had place to give them dry food and the owners were able to rig up 50 gallon barrels of fresh water. So they were getting fresh water, meds and fresh food while they're hanging out and the water is starting to go down. They've only got to hang for three more days until they're on dry ground. And think, so. No, I just was going to say, I think that's a really important point as well, is that we're, we're watching what the water is doing as well. And we knew in this situation that this was not going to be a situation where these horses were going to be in high floodwaters for extent, you know, for, for a very long period of time, we knew when the water was cresting and we knew that the water would recede pretty quickly. So that was also a factor in, in our decision as well. And it, it's really amazing how fast it drops sometimes because we went out that first day and we fed and moved the goats and assessed the situation. And then as we came back, kind of figured out what supplies we were going to take out there in the hay and, and the owner was able to get um, some barrels with fresh water, which is fantastic. But I mean, by the time the second day we went out there, it had dropped at least two feet, which was so encouraging because you can move around a little bit better. Um, we did have a huge obstacle too, because of the matting in the barn. So yeah. the big run, the big rubber mat that uh, kind of coats the bottom of a lot of horse barns was, I mean, almost buoyant in a way. So it was causing a lot of problems for the horses to, to kind of stand and maneuver around. Um, and it was such a long piece that we couldn't roll it all up because of the weight. So, I mean, there's a lot of obstacles, but when the water drops quickly, it gets very encouraging and you can start seeing some of the fences and your obstacles and kind of assessing the situation more. And I think it was day three or four when we went out there and it, they were like almost standing on, on dry concrete. Yeah. The day that we got there and, and there was only an inch of water left in the barn and it was going to drop out of there before we left was a, was a happy day. Because the vet was in there right away. The vet worked seven hours the first day 
to start treating legs and get the, uh, the right meds on board. And this is what we're learning. And I'm actually working with the uh, Florida State Vets Office to hopefully do a case study on this because this has been a successful, happy ending for these horses so far is we just got an update about two weeks ago. No, a week and a half ago yeah. that said, hey, these horses are doing amazing. We have, you know, six of them are are doing excellent and expect a full recovery. There's one that needs her legs wrapped a little bit more, but she's expected to make a full recovery. So, you know, having that outcome and weighing our probability of success uh, really did pay off on this one. Now, guys, the honest truth is it doesn't pay off every time, but we can't tell you the amount of dead large animals that we were seeing as the water dropped and they were washing up on shore and getting hung up in fence lines and left there. You know, we had herds of cattle that were washed away that tried to swim for it. We had horses that tried to swim for it. And the underwater obstacles and their ability to have the endurance to swim long, long distances. We see time and time again in every flood disaster that things happen beyond our control and those animals die. So, you know, all of us <laughs> were just ecstatic when we got to see that update. So yeah. that turned into one of our missions that we dealt with every day, feed in place, vet, took care of those guys. And then we got to another ranch on down the road where we, we had a call from an owner who had evacuated and she was actually told that her whole ranch was underwater and nothing survived. And Carla, you got to talk with her. Yeah, I did. She, you know, was so concerned about, about her animals. And when we were able to give her a report, um, uh, you know, a that not all of them had, had passed away that, you know, that was really exciting to be able to, to tell her that, but honestly, that was a really, um, you know, we didn't know what we were going into on that situation. Cause we were told, Oh, all the animals are dead. So we boated in on the peace river as well. It was a little bit farther down from that first ranch with the horses. And we're just boating in this area and looking for um, any sign of, of animal life. And as we pull in, we did see some pens and what could have been a small lean to, and we thought, oh, that's probably it. Um, Chrissy, you were actually the first one to walk into that one. What did you, what did you see there? Well, based on what the owner kind of said and the reports we'd gotten, I wasn't really expecting to see anything positive. Um, but as soon as I learned how to open the door because it was <laughs> a, farm, a farm lock. <laughs> it was. And I was, I was struggling a little bit that morning. I'm not going to lie. Maybe I didn't have enough coffee, but um, after I got in the door, um, I was pleasantly greeted by um, a bunch of chickens and some quacking ducks. And it's, it's a great sight when you go in and you're not expecting to see anything alive and you're just kind of assessing the situation, but we were able to find some some duck and chicken feed and get them fed and count how many were there and get them taken care of. And then the rest of the team kind of went over because we were, I mean, as we were walking in, we're like, Oh my gosh, there's, there's goats up on this platform. And how the heck did this pig get up there? Right. Like, is, that, is that pig alive? Like That's, yeah. just laying there and not moving. So, um, you know, we, we have, we do a very serious thing and we never take it light when we're in there because you're, I mean, these animals belong to these people. They're, they're, they're part of their family and you don't know the situations that you're going into and what you're really going to find. So, I mean, it's, it's very serious, but, and sad 
at a lot of times, but sometimes we have to find humor in the small things and the little moments to kind of carry us forward. And, and the pig coming to life in that situation <laughs> was just one of those things. Cause you're just not sure what you're going to find. Yeah, we were, um, we found out that the pig's name, she was a little potbelly pig and that her name was Pixie. Um, and the owner told me that her granddaughter had named all the animals. So we got, you know, we got their names. So the first day, uh, we found Pixie and her three little goat buddies on a small platform out of the water. So we gave them, um, some feed and some hay, um, as best we could and, and settled them in until, you know, some more plans could be made. Eric, why don't you talk a little bit about the next day when we came out, what you found in that pen? Yeah, we got out there and Pixie was no longer on the platform. And, you know, one of the things that we knew, uh, that was kind of fun about this ranch is the chickens were dressed to the nines. Some of them <laughs> had some really cute chicken dresses on. Um, and so we knew these guys were loved. And it was interesting because we had a CBS representative with us the first day and he was trying to do a story. And unfortunately, not every animal made it, as Chrissy indicated. And there were dead bodies floating around. And it was one of those things where, you know, we were pushing literally dead bodies aside to get to the live ones. And, and that was something new for for a civilian that, that's not exposed to that. And so, you know, it was one of those things that we, we pushed through and get on, but now Pixie, now, now they're named, you know, when they have a name yeah. and you create that little bond with them, like, where did Pixie go? And we're, we're feeding in place and I'm looking all over the property for her. And I happened to see this little gray ears and snout and two feet hanging onto the fence, clear in the back corner of this property and it got back to, is that pig dead? <laughs> nope. She's alive. Uh, as, as I called for her, I could see her nose twitch. And, and we don't know how long she had been there. We know that her hooves were a little discolored and that she'd been hanging on for quite a long time. So don't know how she got off the platform, uh, but she was hanging on. And so I had called for two other responders uh, to come out and found a, a dog bed to bring out that had a little hole in it and I grabbed Pixie off the fence. And if you've seen the video, she protests, Oh God, <laughs> this is it. The big predator man has got me. I'm bacon. And so she gets on the dog bed and she tries to escape real quick. We put her back on and we start to, to take her out and she relaxes and she's like, Oh, Hey, I, I, I can do this. And she didn't fight the rest of the time. She rode the bed out and, um, you know, we were able to find something to put fresh water in. We actually moved her up to one of the dry areas. It was a cabin that was up on an island that had an enclosed porch. Uh, and I think there's a picture of of uh, Chrissy as she's feeding Pixie. And, and Pixie was actually, I think, trying to eat a little bit, but it looks like she's sticking her tongue out at us. <laughs> Um, but you know, it was one of those things that, you know, we can't stay with them all the time. And the owner said, listen, leave them in place if they're fine. And for Pixie to disappear and, and we had to rescue her twice, we were going to make sure that there was no way there was going to be a platform issue again. Yeah. I called Pixie some pig. <laughs> little miracle pig. Well, we're, we're very glad that Pixie and um, some of the animals on that ranch um, survived. And we do, like Eric said, we do try to make contact with the owners as much as possible. We were in contact with her. We were able to send her pictures of her animals. 
And then we were able to actually direct them into how to get in there safely once the water started receding so that they could then start managing care and veterinary care for their animals themselves. Yeah, so this continues on and, and we're giving you the highlight of the stories. We're not going to give you every mission, but we continue on with feed in place programs, uh, working to bring food in, working with our partners logistically to make sure as we start to get into recovery efforts that the help continues. And we start to wind down with the state and then power's coming back on and people are starting to, to um, you know, find ways to recover. And really, again, the mission of all of our field teams is to come in and handle the surge response. This is the stuff that's going to tax resources right away. Um, and once it starts to slow down, then we start to look at what it's going to take to demobilize. So our days change a little bit from fast-paced rescues to, hey, now we got to start cleaning gear. Now we have to start talking about how do we go home and who goes home. And, you know, we never demobilize all at once. We demobilize in phases just in case there's an unexpected call that comes in or an unexpected mission that comes in uh, that we need to hang out for. So we started to send responders out uh, and demobilize. And, you know, that can be a process for some people. Chrissy, you know, you've been through several disasters with us. What's it like to, to do this for 10 days and run at such a high pace and see such uh, devastation yet good stories come out of it? What's it like going home? It's actually kind of hard because you still see how much work is to be done. And I think I talked about this a little bit on, on some of the videos we shot. There was there, you meet some of the people and you go to their houses and you see their situations and you see how their whole world has just kind of gotten swept away and whatever disaster it is. And I always say that every time I leave, I take a piece of, of that and it becomes my heart like and, and drives me to do what I do with Rescue Ranch and what I do with ASAR and, and Code 3 and, and all of our partners because you want to make a difference and you, you want to help people. I feel like all of us that respond have servants hearts and we're out there to help the people and help the animals. And when you leave these situations, it's, it's, you want to get home and see your family and your own animals and, and you appreciate them more, but at the same time, it's, it's hard leaving. There's still a lot of work to be done and and, and you get into more of a recovery process. So I actually, uh, the night that we demobilized, drove to to Jacksonville just to stick my feet in the water um, on the beach and just kind of take a deep breath for a moment before before coming home because you just you you do see a lot of things that are are sad and devastating and you sometimes you just have to take those moments to kind of decompress and take a breath and know you're going to move forward and keep carrying on doing what you're doing because you do make a difference. Yeah, Carla, you have you you have similar experiences as I do once I get home and you had uh, emailed me to tell me about one of your experiences after you got home. You want to you want to share a little bit of that? So what Eric's talking about is is bizarre dreams that we have after we return from deployment. Um, it's uh, it's a pretty common thing that happens. And I think it's just your brain letting go of, of things. My particular dream at that point, um, we actually didn't really talk about it, but one of my missions that I was um, privileged to, to do while we were on this deployment was to go with a um, ESF-17 state veterinary team 
um, to go assess Captiva, Sanibel, and Pine Islands um, by Black Hawk helicopter. We had to go by helicopter because the causeways, the bridges that connected those islands to the mainland were destroyed. So there was no way to get in there. And there was a lot of social media talk and there wasn't a lot of um, concrete information about what the animal needs were. So um, myself and some veterinarians went in and did basically hasty assessments of those three islands and were able to kind of assess needs for further assessment for some of those islands. But my dream when I came back was that I was on this you know, deserted island with all of these animals that needed water and I couldn't find water. And I, you know, I woke up just absolutely frantic and then very relieved that it was a dream because when we were on those islands, thankfully the situation was, um, was manageable and it, you know, there was a lot of devastation, but the animal needs were, were pretty minimal for some of those islands. And the ones that did have needs were able to quickly get those needs met. But, uh, but yes, the, the dreams when you come back are interesting or just having trouble sleeping and staying asleep is always, you know, an issue and you do have to find ways of decompressing. And sometimes you just have to let your brain go through the process. Yeah, without a doubt. And we talk about it, you know, very openly with our responders. And I do have to say, you know, in the evening after we have dinner and we go to dinner as a crew uh, or eat as a crew, uh, it was, that's the time that people just kind of find their niches and hot wash or talk about their day and uh you know this is a team that when there's work to be done everybody's going to put their hands on that work and get it done and when it's time to relax everybody's going to pile into a, a pile of puppies and talk about their day and we try to prep people for some of that uh, because it's you're you're working very closely with people in tiny house situations so, you know, as we get into our recovery and we've gotten home, it doesn't mean that we've left. And I'm really proud of one of the programs we rolled out this year uh, with Home to Home. And if you're not familiar with Home to Home, they traditionally are a animal placement uh, platform online that if you need to place your pet and you don't want to take it to the shelter, you can sign up for Home to Home. And if there's people that are looking to adopt pets, it's like match.com for pets is you work with that person and you talk to them and there's a whole bunch of interview questions of whether, you know, to help establish if that animal's going to be a good fit in this new home and you take care of the placement of that animal. And I really, when I found home to home several years ago and Mandy Evans uh, over with better, better together, better together uh, animal Alliance uh, is the founder for home to home. And I said, Mandy, I said, I can use this in disasters as an intake diversion program. So animals don't have to go into emergency animal shelters. And so what they agreed to do was set up a temporary foster program for us in disasters that as code three and ASAR roll into an area, they will geofence. There's a big technical term for you. They will geofence the area and for about 50 miles on each side of a disaster, say, hey, if you are available to help an animal and temporarily house it while the owner gets back on its feet, please sign up here. And at the same time, they go to pet owners that have been impacted and say, listen, if you just need to place your animal in a safe place with somebody and you don't want it to go to the animal shelter, um, here's a place that you can sign up. And it's a free service. You work together with the people that have signed up. You guys get together by phone and say, hey, yes, please, you know, take Fluffy for a week while I try to put my house back together. And over 200 people signed up to house pets in, from the disaster 
And every animal that was signed up that needed a place to temporarily stay got a home. I was over the moon ecstatic that that program worked so well. It was deployed both in Florida and Georgia when Ian came back around for that swipe uh, going through Georgia and South Carolina. And, you know, the interactions, they had over 298,000 interactions on this platform, and we didn't even get it advertised very well. So we're really going to be pushing that out for our home to phone partners, uh, because having the ability to keep animals out of an emergency animal shelter really is critical during this time. You guys have heard me talk about the shelter and transport crisis in the country. Um, So, you know, another Another area where we keep uh, helping communities during recovery and and giving them an opportunity. I think that's such a great program, too, because so many people are like, how can we help? Like they're not trained to go down and and do the technical rescue or or to go down and do the search and rescue. But how can they help from home? And I always like supply drives, like trying to figure out like the area's needs and getting those needs down there. But what a great way that people can help people in a disaster situation, because I mean, their, their homes are a mess and it's going to take them a while to, you know, kind of clean that up and and rebuild their lives. So just just knowing that their animals are being taken care of while they're trying to put everything back together is just, it's an amazing service to give people. Yeah. And Rescue Ranch pitched in on that. You guys put together a bunch of product to send down. How did that go? It went well. And like I said, so many times when there's disasters, you know, it's amazing what the community wants to do to help and it really brings out the good in people. So, I mean, we were able to collect supplies and and one of our partners, Ruin Creek, uh, was transporting supplies down to the areas in need in Florida to help them with simple things like toilet paper and paper towels and cleaning product and dog and cat food. I mean, there's just such a need in those situations. So, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic way of how people can come together and help each other as a community. And I mean, we see it in every disasters, neighbors helping neighbors and everybody taking care of each other, which is just kind of heartwarming to see. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we're going to start to wrap this up. Hopefully you've enjoyed our stories, but we, you know, we got to leave you with some happy thoughts. So Chrissy, I'm coming back to you. Give me the the things that make your the, the story that made you smile, the heartwarming story, uh, the funny moment. What did you take away that that can make you smile out of this event? You know, Eric, I try to keep very lighthearted when we when we deploy and find the humor in in a lot of situations. Um, maybe it's my way of coping. And I've been sitting here because you kind of teed me up that we were going to have one, and I can't really decide. I think I have one funny animal one. Which is proud, and both of them involve Carla, by the way. <laughs> I have one funny animal one, and that was when um, we finally got over that. So, getting around in Florida was very difficult because a lot of the roadways got washed out. So, we would um, try and put boats in, and we would get a little bit down the road, and we it would just dry up. So, obviously, you can't keep boating, and you can't pick the boats up and dry, you know, walk them across the land. So, it just made it difficult. <laughs> one day when we went to go find these piglets we knew there were piglets there we saw the one pig and yes again the story is we thought the pig was dead at first until we got up to the pig and then it started kind of oinking and moving away from us so we we put food down and then there was a gentleman on the bridge I'm not really sure what he was even doing there but I go over and he's kind of telling me the piglets are down here so I'm like trying to climb over the pylon on the bridge 
and Carla's putting food out and she puts food out and these two little piglets just shoot out of this tall grass and go hauling down the road. I've never seen a little piglet run that fast in my life. It was so funny. And then my second Carla story was, I don't know if it was the same day or not. We came back and Kathy, one of the other responders that was staying in the trailer with us, she's like, can you unlock the trailer? Carla's like, it's unlocked. Kathy's like, and Carla was getting so mad because she's like, I just was in there. It's unlocked. And turns out Carla locked us all out of the trailer. <laughs> I swear I, I unlocked it. I still don't know how that happened. <laughs> Luckily, we also have a, uh, a pick, not pickpocket. What do you call it? Someone who can a locksmith. Lock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's always an incident with keys. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I know, but there's so many like interesting moments that we, I mean, I captured it on a video, but I would not share publicly. Like the great turtle rescue that happened right outside of our RV. And there's just, there's quite a few humorous stories that happen, but those, those are my, my two top. Carla. Oh man. Um, I have several, I mean, obviously riding in the Black Hawk helicopter was an absolute bucket list thing for me. In fact, funnily enough, I was looking um, at some, you know, this time of year, my Facebook memories that pop up are a lot of deployments. And my very first deployment, I think, well, one of my first uh, was Hurricane Matthew back in 2016. And I had taken a video of a Black Hawk helicopter landing at the EOC. And I had code and I said, I made a comment that said, um, going to have to figure out how to get a ride in one of these someday. And sure enough, six years later, um, I was able to do that. So that was pretty, you know, that was pretty neat for me to be able to do that. But I think on this deployment, um, you know, I met a few people and you hear their stories and, you know, those are always the things that really stick with you are, you know, the, hopefully the people that you can help the people that you can give some hope. Um, even if it's just to let them know that their little pig Pixie um, is still alive and doing well and that we are going to care for her. So um, Pixie surviving um, a, a little harrowing event of, of almost drowning was, was probably the highlight of mine that, that she survived. Yeah. You know, and that, that was unique for us this year. We had the opportunity to move the animal shelter uh, when American Red Cross moved and we got to meet some people. And, and talk to their story and hear their stories. And we spent, you know, two, three, four hours as, as we did this move and packaged up their animals to, to change locations. And uh, really uh, fascinating heroin stories of survival of, you know, uh, being uh, rescued from the floodwaters by first responders, uh, left at the water's edge to hopefully get a ride and find a ride and then your house is gone and all you have left are your, are your animals. And you, we know it happens every time, but to actually spend the time with these folks is really heartwarming. I think for me as, as the, the overall team lead, uh, the, the best part of this was we had one of the best organically connected crews in the field this year that we've had in a long time. Uh, you guys know, I've said it almost every podcast, the number one rule in Eric's camp is drama free. Don't bring drama. And every night I had to fill out paperwork and I'd go sit in my truck because it's about the only quiet place I can find. And I do all the paperwork for the emergency operations center and then I'm done. And I could, you know, the, the two moments that stick out most to me and they're simple moments, but it, it it chokes me up every time I think about it is I get out of my truck and I walk the length of our fleet 
and our fleet is long now. We've got eight vehicles, semi-trucks, and it's at night, and everybody's starting to decompress, and everybody's potted up and just hanging out, talking about their day, and, and it's brothers and sisters that are working together. And then the other one was uh, the simple breaking down of a Zodiac. And, and putting the boats away is that I had to go to the EOC and I come back and here's the entire team, hands on, folding up boats, putting stuff away and working together and laughing. You know, we're out there sweating our butts off. It's hot and sunny and everybody is working hard and dirty, dusty and covered in fire ants. But they're working together and they're having such a good time. And I just stand back and I'm like, man, that is cool. So I, I can't ever explain that enough that when you work with people that close and can do the hard, disgusting, nasty work and still laugh through it uh, and find things to rib each other about. I mean, nobody's safe. You know, it doesn't matter. Where, it doesn't matter where you are in the ICS chart. Everybody is going to get licked on. You know, somebody's going to set a zinger out. And every once in a while, man, there's some good ones. And you're just like, oh, I wish I could have captured that. So I think for me, uh, just having uh, an awesome crew with us uh, that's there to help the the community is, is an amazing feat. Because, you know, for me, and I've said it before, having people choose to volunteer their time to come into a disaster and spend time with us in less than ideal conditions uh, is an amazing decision to me. You could be literally doing anything else in the world and you choose to put yourself in that environment and just an incredible sacrifice by everybody that's involved. Uh, and not just from ASAR, from all of our partners and from all the first responders that were at that base camp. Uh, such an amazing job. Well, I think we've told the story today, ladies. Any you know, parting thoughts? I, I do have some. I think this might be a whole episode, though, of your podcast. <laughs> but I think there, at some point, we have to really focus on all of the fun stuff that we're in the water with. <laughs> <laughs> and how we overcome some of our simple fears mm. for the sake of saving animals. Did you have dreams about spiders, Christy? <laughs> only, only that one night. <laughs> Uh, no, it's... like I think back to the stories when we were saving Pixie and, um, there was this, like a Fox yard art statue and it had gotten buoyant. I don't really know what it was made. I didn't get too close to check it out, but you know, you see all the stories, there's alligators there's snakes, you know, there were sharks swimming, swimming down the street. <laughs> so I see this ear pop up over in the water of what it's just a gray ear, but I couldn't really tell what it was. And I'm like, what else is in the water with us today? I had to kind of go investigate. It was just a statue, but there's, <laughs> there's things like that, that, you know, it's kind of funny because you never know what the water's so dark and you can't see your feet. So you don't really know what's coming or what's around you and what's floating on top. And I just think that's something people don't really realize the fire ants, the, nasty eight-legged spiders that are just floating on top of the water that like to climb high and <laughs> be on you. Lots uh, of creepy crawlies. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Just something else for down the road. Absolutely. Miss Carla? Um, you know, my, my final thoughts are, you know, a little bit about what you were just talking about, Eric, is that, um, you know, there's, there's reasons we, we do what we do. And, you know, some of it's the people, some of it's the animal animals, but ultimately, you know, I, I consider us a family 
and the the people you meet, even the new people you bring in, you know, we just try to embrace them and 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 try to bring them in and and we try to have a good time and we work hard. And and there are disagreements and there are irritations, but in the end, we all come together, we hug it out, we talk it out. And, you know, these people are are my family and, you know, we'd go to the ends of the earth for each other. Um, and, and that's just really my takeaway from, from this deployment and, and most of them. You, bet. And you, and you share an emotional connection with them because you, I mean, some of the people that we were down in Florida this last trip were this first time I met them and, you know, you're in these situations and you're, you're working together for the common good. Like you're all there for the same reason and that's to help. So you put all your political beliefs and your personal beliefs to the side to do what you're, you need to do. And, and you share these moments and you share the sadness and you share the, the good times and the moments and the lightheartedness. And, and that's how you bring people together. I mean, it really is a family of people and everybody is there to just help and, and do good. You bet. Without a doubt. Well, if you haven't had a chance to see the pictures or any of the videos, you can go to the ASAR Training Response Facebook page. Uh, Carla, I think you've got some stuff on Instagram and TikTok. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah, we have a little TikTok account. Um, Usually it winds up on Facebook as well and Instagram. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. And if you would like more information about Code 3 or ASAR, please go to our websites at code3associates.org and asartraining.com.